Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. This week, Joe Baker and Joanna Trollope are reimagining Jane Austen. They're introduced here by Adele Coffey. Good evening, everybody. Thanks very much for coming along tonight uh, to see Joanna Trollope and Joe Baker in conversation. Um, over the past few decades, an entire industry has emerged out of the desire to know more about Jane Austen and her books and the characters and world within those books. Um, Joe Baker's Longbourn reimagines Pride and Prejudice from the servant's point of view, while Joanna Trollope completely updates um, a classic sense and sensibility for modern times. We're going to talk in depth about both books in just a few minutes, but first we thought it'd be nice to open with some readings from both books to give you a taste of each. So Joanna is going to start. And Joanna, would you like to tell us a bit about the section you're going to read, please? I, I certainly will. Well, first, thank you all so much for coming. It's fantastic to see such an audience. Very, very encouraging for both of us and for Jane, actually. Um, I'm going to read you two very well-known scenes from Sense and Sensibility because you will have those in your heads and therefore you can sort of see what I've done. And when I updated this novel, which Jane finally, she worked on it for about 16 years and finally got it published in about 1809. And all I've done is take exactly the same people and exactly the same narrative and Jane's attitude to all the characters, and I've transposed it to 2015. So I'm going to start with um, one of the best scenes I think she ever wrote. Do you remember reading Sense and Sensibility? Do you remember how the first chapter takes a, a bit of getting through? It's all about wills and entails. It's not really terribly interesting. And the next scene, the, the second chapter, contains one of the best scenes she ever wrote, which is the one in which Fanny Dashwood, the daughter-in-law, do you remember, talks her feeble husband John down out of giving his stepsisters, his half-sisters, any money at all. And this is the modern version. This is 2013. So, um, Mrs. Dashwood, who I've, doesn't have a, a first name in the original, so I've called her Isabella, being a Jane Austen-y kind of name, and she's Belle in this book. So, Belle is in her kitchen with Eleanor, Marianne and Margaret. They'd heard her all the last few weeks talking John out of any generous impulse he might have harboured towards his stepmother and half-sisters. Fanny might be tiny, but her voice seemed to carry for miles, even when she was whispering. Usually they could hear her issuing instructions. She never says please, Margaret pointed out, does she? But if she wanted to get something out of John, she wheedled. They could hear her plainly in their kitchen, from the room she had commandeered as a temporary sitting room. Drawing room, she called it working on John. She was probably on his knee a lot of the time doing her sex kitten thing, running her little pointed fingers through his hair and somehow indicating that he would have to forego a lot of bedroom treats if she didn't get her way. <laughs> they can't need that much, Johnny darling. They really can't. I mean, I know Mags is still at school, frightfully expensive, her private school, and really such a waste of money when there's a perfectly adequate sec state secondary in Lewis, which is free. But Eleanor's nearly qualified, and Marianne jolly well ought to be, and Belle could easily go back to work teaching art like she used to. She hasn't, for yonks, John said doubtfully, not for as long as I can remember. Dad liked having her at home. Well, darling, we can't always have what we like, can we? And she's had years, years of just wafting about Norlan, being all daffy and artistic and irresponsible. There was a murmur, and then John said without much conviction, I promised Dad. Sweetness, Fanny said. Listen, listen to me. What about your promises to me? What about our Harry? I know you love this place. I know what it means to you, even if you've never lived here, and you know I'll help you restore it and keep it up. 
I promised you, didn't I? I promised when I married you. But it's going to cost a fortune, it really is. The thing is, Johnny, that good interior designers don't come cheap. And we agreed, didn't we, that we were going to go for gold and not cut corners because that's what a house like this deserves. Well, John had said uneasily, I suppose... Pop it, said Fanny. You just think about us. Think about you and me and Harry and Norland. Norland is our home. There'd been a long pause after that. They're snogging, Margaret said disgustedly. She's sitting on his lap and they're snogging. Now, I'm just going to read you another of the best-known scenes in this, which is, do you remember the famous scene in which Willoughby dumps Marianne in public? Well, in my version, it's at a wedding reception, a London wedding reception. And Tommy Palmer, um, Mrs Jennings' son-in-law, has just been rather nice to them, rather kind to them. And here they are in the crowd together. Marianne didn't want to come to the wedding because she didn't think Willoughby, who she calls Wills, would be there. And she's made rather a fuss. She looks absolutely gorgeous, having made no effort at all, because she is extremely lovely to look at, whatever she's wearing. She's one of those girls who could wear a bin liner and still clear the room. She looked so stunning. So here they are at the wedding reception. Eleanor was looking past her, her gaze following Tommy Palmer's back into the crowd ahead of them. Just past the point he had now got to, about ten feet away, was someone unmistakable, someone she had not perceived in church, someone with his arm around the shoulders of a tall and handsome girl, her loudly blonde hair piled on top of her head in an elaborate arrangement. And as she realised who she was looking at, Wills turned his head and looked full at her, and then at Marianne, and turned back, quite deliberately, to talk to the girl within his arm. Eleanor spun round to Marianne, her heart leaping, with a sudden prayer that Marianne had not yet seen him. But she was, in that instant, already too late. Marianne, her face instantly illuminated with relief and joy, had thrust her champagne glass into her sister's hand and was plunging through the crowd, crying out Will's name as if he could not possibly be anything other than enraptured to see her. But he wasn't. She reached him in seconds, the crowd falling away around her violent passage in amazement, and in complete disregard of the girl he held against him, flung her arms around his neck and held her shining face up to his, completely and utterly certain of her welcome. Wilf, she was saying, oh, Wilf, at last, at last I knew we'd find each other again. He did not move. His expression, staring down at Marianne, was wooden. The girl beside him tried to disengage herself, but he clamped her closer. Then he bent very slightly towards Marianne and hissed at her, Get off me! There was a gasp from everyone around them, so loud that it obscured Marianne's own cries. Eleanor saw to her horror that Marianne was trying to cling to Wills, that she had manoeuvred her hands further round his neck, and that she was trying to say something urgently, her face close to his. A man standing next to them laid a restraining hand on Marianne's shoulder, and Eleanor, thrusting both glasses in her hands at a conveniently passing waiter, found herself pushing forward, battling to get to her sister, before any of the guests attempted physically to defuse the situation themselves. She took Marianne's nearest arm and tried to prize it from Will's neck. Em, Em, please! Thank God! Will said, his voice strangled by Marianne's grip. Someone with some sense. Please, Ellie, get her off me. Marianne, Eleanor said loudly in her sister's ear. Let him go. Drop your arms. Let him go. You should call a doctor, the blonde girl said. Her voice was richly, exotically foreign. She needs help. She is a crazy person. You didn't answer my calls, Marianne shrieked. You didn't text me. I've heard nothing, nothing for weeks. 
Eleanor had by now got her hands on both Marianne's arms. Let him go now. Please, Will said, just get her away from me. And fetch a doctor, the blonde girl said again. This is crazy. Joanna, we're going back in time now. Um, would you like to interview or, or in introduce even the section you're going to read, Joe? So um, I'm going to read two little pieces um, from the novel, and I think it's kind of helpful to start at the beginning. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, the book is, as we said earlier, the story of what's going on below stairs in Pride and Prejudice, um, and. There's been, you know, a lot of talk when the book came out about prequels and sequels, and I realise it's actually it's a subquel. It's, it's going, it's what's going on underneath. But I'm going to start by introducing the um, the character of Sarah at the beginning of the book, who um, is my protagonist, and she's the only housemaid that gets named in Pride and Prejudice, and that's um, part of how the novel started. This novel started to happen for me. So this is Sarah. There could be no wearing of clothes without their laundering, just as surely as there could be no going without clothes, not in Hertfordshire anyway, and not in September. Wash day could not be avoided, but the weekly purification of the household's linen was nonetheless a dismal prospect for Sarah. The air was sharp at 4.30 in the morning when she started work. The iron pump handle was cold, and even with her mitts on, her chilblains flared as she heaved the water up from the underground dark and into her waiting pail. A long day to be got through, and this just the very start of it. All else was stillness. Sheep huddled in drifts on the hillside. Birds in the hedgerows were fluffed like thistledown. In the woods, fallen leaves rustled with the passage of a hedgehog. The stream caught starlight and glistened over rocks. Below, in the barn, cows huffed clouds of sweet breath, and in the sty the sow twitched, her piglets bundled at her belly. Mrs. Hill and her husband, up high in their tiny attics, slept the black, blank sleep of deep fatigue. Two floors below, in the principal bedchamber, Mr. and Mrs. Bennet were a pair of churchyard humps under the counterpane. The young ladies, all five of them sleeping in their beds, were dreaming of whatever it was that young ladies dream, and over it all, our icy starlight shone. It shone on the slate roofs and the flagged yard and the necessary house and the shrubbery and the little wilderness off to the side of the lawn and on the coveys where the pheasants huddled and on Sarah, one of the two long-born housemaids who cranked the pump and filled a bucket and rolled it aside, her palms already sore, and then set another down to fill it too. Over the eastern hills, the sky was fading to a transparent indigo. Sarah, glancing up, hands stuffed into her armpits, her breath clouding the air, dreamed of the wild places beyond the horizon, where it was already fully light, and of how, when her day was over, the sun would be shining on other places still, on the Barbados and Antigua and Jamaica, where the dark men worked half-naked, and on the Americas, where the Indians wore almost no clothes at all, and where there was, consequently, very little in the way of laundry, and how one day she would go there and never have to wash other people's underthings again. So that's, that's my Sarah, um, with her eyes on the horizon and her hands already sore. Um, and I thought I'd maybe read a little bit from later on in the book as well, to sort of give you a sense of how the book sort of works structurally, because of that notion of the subquel. Um, the, the events of Pride and Prejudice are not just noises off in my book, though sometimes characters will open doors and you can hear conversations that are actually happening in Austen's novel. Um, and when meals are served in Pride and Prejudice, we've seen them prepared in Longbourn. And when a carriage is brought round in Pride and Prejudice, James has run to sort it out in my book. Um, so it has that kind of play between one book and the other. But some of it is not very playful. Some of these events of Pride and Prejudice have pressure on the world below stairs. They have an effect, though it's not the same effect as the one that's going on upstairs in the, um, the parlour and the, the breakfast room. And this is an instance of that. In the grey light of day, Mrs Hill understood that she must find a way around this a way of dealing with Sarah that was not head-on, but that slipped instead around the edge of her stubbornness and into the sweet and giving nature it defended. 
But even as Mrs Hill was thinking this, she was scolding the girl, saying she'd better lift her chin up before she tripped on it. I should have said, Sarah's in trouble at this point. She's in the doghouse with Mrs Hill. She's been up to no good. Not terribly bad no good, but not good nonetheless. So she's in the doghouse, to recap. But even as Mrs Hill was thinking this, she was scolding the girl, saying that she'd better lift her chin up before she tripped on it. The only reply she got was a long look and a stiffening of the shoulders and a clattering down of dishes. I expect a civil answer when I speak to you. Speak civilly to me, missus, and you shall get one. Mrs Hill's jaw dropped. She was about to step cleanly over the brink of her temper, but then James pushed in through the hall door and she saw herself as she must appear to him, a bitter, frowning old scold, and she clamped her mouth shut. She would say something kind instead, something soothing and considerate that would reconcile her with the girl, if she could but think what. Her efforts to summon something up were broken by a flurry of activity overhead. They heard the breakfast room door flung open and slammed, then a race of light footsteps down the hallway and up the stairs, one of the girls running to her bedchamber. Then more footsteps, heavier, going the opposite way to the first, Mrs Bennett's. She was heading to the breakfast room. In the kitchen, the four of them stood stone still, heads cocked. James, on the threshold, poured the door, poured, pushed the door a little wider. What is it? Polly asked. What's going on? It'll be Mr Collins, Sarah said. He'll have gone and proposed. <laughs> Polly was agog. Who to? Elizabeth. Really? Shh! Mrs Hill and Sarah moved to stand by James. Polly crept up too, and then Mr Hill shambled over to join them in the doorway, shaking his head. They listened to the low burr of voices. What are they saying? Sarah put her finger to her lips. They heard the breakfast room door flung open again, and then Mrs Bennet's footsteps pounding down the hallway. She passed into their line of sight. They shrank, Polly ducking low, Mr Hill stepping back, Sarah squeezing in behind James, and Mrs Hill turning completely away back into the kitchen. I never knew she could move so fast, Polly said. They saw her throw open the library door. Polly made big eyes at Sarah. She hadn't even knocked. Oh, Mr. Bennett, you are wanted immediately. Mrs. Bennett pulled the door shut behind her, cutting off the noise. James took his weight off their own door and let it fall closed. Sarah went back to the table, lifted the dishes. Poor fellow, poor fool, James said. Mrs. Hill, Mr. Hill, sorry, Mrs. Hill shook her head. What an awful shame. Mary would have had him. Sarah headed for the scullery. Then the library bell jangled. They stopped, watched it dance there on its spring. I'll go, said James. No, said Mr Hill, they want Miss Lizzie fetching down, so I'll go, Sarah said. Mrs Hill stepped back to let her pass. This was a disaster, and it hit her like a horse's kick. Now he might marry anybody. Who knew what little ninny with a head full of fashionable nonsense he might pick up at Bath or Bristol or Canterbury or wherever it was that clergymen went looking for their wives? But if, as Sarah had said, Mary might have him, could snag him, they would be so safe with her. Mary would not want, would not want novelty simply for novelty's sake. With Mary in charge, the world below stairs would be as secure as anything in this world could hope to be. Both of those readings were wonderful and both of them were a perfect example of how adaptable and how many interpretations you can make of Jane Austen's work. Um, if I could perhaps start by just asking you when you decided you were going to do this and when the idea came to you and was there any apprehension whatsoever? Right. Um, <laughs> um, I find it quite hard to date exactly when. Um, the idea came to me in that I'd been thinking about the servants in Austin for a long, long time. I've been reading Austin on and off, well, again and again, really, rather than on and off since I was 12, loving her books, you know, wearing out copy after copy, and yet not feeling quite at home in her books because I knew my own family had been in service until relatively recently. My grandma worked as a housemaid, and, my, and her sisters did as well. And so there was that kind of uneasy sort of... I, a sort of dissonance in that relationship. I loved that world. I couldn't really imagine myself in Elizabeth Bennet's boots. I'd probably be cleaning those boots. 
And that's where the, the sort of that sort of sort of question about it came from. But then just on one rereading, one day, rereading Pride and Prejudice yet again, uh, in that kind of comfort blanket kind of way, I just stumbled upon a line and I got stuck on it and I couldn't get past it. And it was, and the whole of, of Longbourn comes out of that one line, really, in Pride and Prejudice. And it's in the lead up to the Netherfield Ball. And when it's been raining and raining and raining for, for days, no one can go out the house. No one's prepared to go out the house because it's so muddy, the roads are awash, you know. And so, um, yeah, and so the line in, in Austin is the very shoe roses for Netherfield were got by proxy. And I thought, who is Proxy? Who is Proxy? I just wanted to know. And how does she feel about... And very soon, sort of, that question became associated with Sarah, who's the one housemaid who does get named in Pride and Prejudice. How does she feel about going out in the rain to fetch decorations for other women's dancing shoes so they can go to the ball, but she can't possibly hope to attend? So it, it sort of came out of, uh, it came out of that dynamic with Austin and that question. Sort of Cinderella. It is a kind of Cinderella thing, yes, really. Yes. Except Cinderella is also a gentleman's daughter. Yes. And yes. As, as is and Elizabeth, yes. you know. And if you're yeah. not a gentleman's daughter, which, you know, no disrespect to my dad, I'm not, you yes. know. <laughs> um, you don't get to go to the ball. No. You've got no fairy no, no. godmother. So what, so what would she have gone to... Um, What's the Meriton? What would what would she have gone wearing? Just a shawl over her head. Well, I have her in the rain. I have her dressed in. There's that wonderful bit in Persuasion where there's a where um, where Captain Wentworth is talking about his new ship. Yes. And he's oh, it's not a new ship. It's an old ship, and um, it's like a police you might borrow from a neighbour. A police, of course. So she wears one of those. Wears it, yeah. And it's sort of described along the lines as Cap Captain Wentworth. It's this sort of grotty old garment that everybody's yes. borrowed and that gets hung up. A bad up. weathered yeah. garment, yeah. yeah. Joanna, you moved into the future with your, or not the future, in the future, mm. from the perspective of sense and sensibility. Um, so it's, it's current, we, we heard you reading about texts. Um, how enjoyable was that for you or how difficult was it to update it? Um, no, no problem at all. It was the most enormous fun. Mm. It really was. Um, is the story quite timeless in that way, that it's adapted well, the, to modern times? What you have to remember about Jane Austen is um, how new the novel was as a form when mm. she was writing. Mm. I mean, it's, yeah. I suppose if you, if you take you know, the, the fledgling novel to be people like Richardson, those epistolary novels, and then the first, would you say about Tom Jones would be about the first time we can see a novel looking like what we would recognise as a novel? Well, that was only really about 30 years before Jane Austen wrote Sense and Sensibility. So it's, it's as if Joe or I were writing in a literary genre that had only really been thought finished in 1990. So maybe computer games. Yes, it is, it, it is, it is exactly that. So yeah. what always blows me away about Jane Austen is that she knew, she had no doubt, I don't think, about her genius. I think she knew absolutely how gifted she was. You know, she used to refer to this novel and um, Pride and Prejudice as my darling child. I think she was very thankful when the Harry Big Withers proposal sort of fell by the wayside and she wasn't going to inevitably have to have a baby, which was such a, a hazard of um, mm -hmm. early 19th century marriages. Um, and the, these novels became her baby, but the thing that always blows me away is that with this absolutely new genre, she understood that the great themes were always going to be money, class, and romantic love. And they still are. Mm. I mean, that's really what War and Peace is about, isn't it? I mean, it's, there isn't a novel... Yes, you, you, can, you can kind of um, sort of uh, distort it and pervert it and squeeze it and shift the emphasis. But really, that's what almost all novels are about. You know, I suppose you add the violence of thrillers now, but there's nearly always a personal life in there as well. And she, she understood this. I, you know, where did she understand that from? Liv growing up on a, in a fairly obscure country parish in Hampshire, she knew. 
And also when you think, like if you're in relation to those earlier novels, these are so beautifully crafted stories. Yes, they're they so are. precisely told. Yes, they compared, are. I mean, I, I love Tom Jones, but it is this kind of rambling, well, picaresque. It's a picaresque yeah. sort of ramble. Yes, it is so exactly a ramble. Yeah. It is. So was Tristram Shandy. So yeah. were a lot of those yeah. pre preceding novels. Yeah. But this one, she, she's got her eye on the goal and she keeps towards it. So, in a sense, the. Um, the novels translate to today absolutely seamlessly, timelessly. And, and all the characters do. You know, Marianne's sense of emotional entitlement is extremely modern. Um, Willoughby, <laughs> Willoughby becomes um, a rather shady, spoiled, enormously handsome, very sexy, trustafarian with a rented uh, a leased Aston Martin instead of a horse. Um, the Steele sisters are straight out of the only way is Essex. Um, <laughs> you know, Colonel, Colonel Brandon does a, a noble thing. Colonel Brandon has used his inherited house for something remarkable um, because, you know, he's, he's a good man with a, with a conscience. And the, the rather dreary Ed, Edward Ferrers, of course, is a modern depressive. <laughs> everybody has got everybody translated without my really having to make them do so. It was an absolute joy. I mean, the difficulty of the novel for a modern audience is that nobody has any work because, of course, the great commodity of the 18th century and the early 19th century was sugar, not a million miles from slavery. I mean, why, why does Mr. Bingley have square root of F all to do? Because he's, he's, a, he's a sugar yes. this, this comes up in your novel it as does, well. Yes. Was yeah. that a, an aspect? That's something that's kind of not off limits, but something we don't get to see a lot of in Pride and Prejudice. Did you want to kind of set the record a bit straighter by it's, introducing that element? It was, there was never any sort of agenda there. It was just I would find these little clues in, in the text in my very, you know, my this sort of very thorough rereading. Yes, really, yes. <laughs> and it was, there's a line. Obviously, she goes into, she talks much more about slavery or about the sugar trade, really, in Mansfield Park, because there are estates in Antigua that must be taken care of. We can only speculate exactly what's going on there. Um, but in Pride and Prejudice, it's said that of, of the late Mr. Bingley, um, our current Mr. Bingley's father, that he made his money in trade in the North. And as Joanna said, you know, the money is, is of this period. But the that trade could have been is sugar. Slavery and in Liverpool, couldn't it? It could. I transpose it to Lancaster, which is mm. where I'm from, and which is a very Georgian little town, mm. and I know that it made its money out of, you know, the money that it had at that time came from the sugar, slavery, yeah. tobacco. Um, that's what trade in the North was. It was yeah. either going to be Liverpool or Lancaster. Yeah. At, at one point, Lancaster and Liverpool were kind of neck and neck, and then the river in Lancaster silted up, and the ships oh. got bigger, and that's why Liverpool is the big port, and Lancaster is barely known, you know? How interesting. So at that time, though, there were these, yeah. these um, merchant ventures from there, and that was yes. bringing in the money. And as we know, a lot of the, tr of the money in, in society at that time was washing but, around the place because of think, slavery. Don't you think it gives Jane Austen a wonderful kind of sinewy, muscular quality that there was this very tough background underneath. Mm. I mean, the Austins were all ardent abolitionists, weren't they? But the, the fact that, you know, her mother was a Georgian, it was an incompletely an unsentimental upbringing. Mm. And that, that quality is, is very much in these novels. It's mm. tough, you know, oh, it is. Sarah's yeah. life, the servant's life below stairs yeah. in Longbourn, it's tough. Isn't it? Yeah, it's hard it is, work. Yeah, yeah. And, but as, as you say, I mean, there's, there's, that toughness is there in Austen as well. There's the brutal yes. decisions to be made mm. um, by these young women. And that's the why the, the women are so mad to marry for money, because it was, marriage was the only career, wasn't it, mm. for a gently born woman. It was mm. necessary mm. to marry, mm. which is why Jane herself was so keen on these novels, because they were going to rescue her. Mm. She never really made that much out of them. And just towards the end of her life, she was able to buy think, fabrics and things like that. Don't you think she was on the cusp? I think so, yeah. I think she just when, died a little When she died, she had Addison's disease, yeah. didn't she? And she died when she was 41? I think so. And I think she was just on the cusp of, 
and, mm. and, and also her brother Henry, because of the mores of the time, he um, was organising all the yeah. business dealings with the publisher. Her agent. But yeah. I think not very well. Yeah. I think she felt <laughs> she could have done it much better herself. Yes. Yeah. And she, she was just about to sort of explode. Did she leave her money to um, Cassandra? Did she leave what I don't she... recall. I just remember, I remember from the letters, that, you know, the time she was saying about what she'd spent her money on. Yes. And you're delighted and to buy clothes. these fabrics. And yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes, and they were quite... It's very fascinating. Have, have any of you read her letters? Because, you know, she said to Cassandra she wanted her letters burnt. And I think about 160 survived. Yeah, I think so. It, there's an OUP edition, which is rather good. And they're, they're full of things when she's writing to Cassandra, when Cassandra's in Kent looking after yet another night baby. Um, she says things like, um, I've bought you the cherry-coloured ribbon you <laughs> asked for, and I've bought you the length of India muslin, but you still owe me for the lilac kid gloves, so. Yes. <laughs> um, and we, uh, we had fish last night, and it had come all the way from Southampton. It was definitely not fresh. <laughs> There's a lot of food, yeah. a lot of parties, yeah. a lot of gossip. Mm. Um, it's very practical, Yes, isn't there's it? complaints about cellars being damp and this kind yes, of thing. You yes, know, it's, it's, it was, they were a real boon for me in terms of just that kind of gossipy detail of domestic life and the fabrics they were buying you, and how got, you got your teeth done. you've got done that so well in the book, just the feel mm. of what it was like below stairs. Mm. You're both clearly steeped in Austin. Well, I should think everybody in this room uh, Probably, is. but yeah. how much research did you need to do for these books? You clearly had to go off yeah. and do a lot of uh, yeah. separate research, yeah. but uh, Joanna, yours is quite faithful to the original book. Did you, did you want to add in anything else in terms of um, Well, Austin? I had to give them jobs. Yes, they exactly. had to have things to do. So, um, <laughs> because it says in the original, you know, that Eleanor was very good uh, she was a very good artist, very good draftsman. I've made her into an architectural student. Um, Marianne's still sort of faffing about with music um, because we had, I had to have some reason for Marianne to be physically so frail because if she just had a broken heart for three quarters of the book, you know, we'd all get unbelievably irritated with her, primarily me. <laughs> so... I had to have a reason to kill off her father at the beginning of the book, because this is what happens, and a reason for her to have physical crises. So I've made them both asthmatics, oh. because that is still a very frightening modern uh, complaint mm. and happens very suddenly. Mm. And nobody, you know, it's a kind of allergy that nobody quite can get a handle on. And mm. nobody, there are physical circ circumstances, but there are also emotional ones yes. that rather yeah. like blood pressure yeah. that can suddenly send somebody into a crisis. So Marianne is using her asthma as an excuse not to really get down to getting a job. And Margaret, who everybody calls Mags in the book, of course, is only 13. I mean, in the book, they are, they are 19, 17, and 11. So I've jacked them up just a couple of years because to modern mores, if Marianne had said she'd found the love of her life at 17, mm. we would all have said to her, pull yourself together, darling, this is just <laughs> <Yes>. the beginning. <laughs> you know, don't be idiotic. This happened to me. It's infatuation. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so because life was so much more uncertain then yeah. and maturity happened so early, I've had to shift that. But Colonel Brandon was a soldier. Um, John Middleton. Of course, you see Mrs. Dashwood, um, Belle in my book. Fanny Dashwood says of her mother, her, her um, stepmother-in-law, she says, um, of course, the, the trouble about leaving her any money is that Mrs. Dashwood is not yet 40. Everybody's very young. Yes. Yes. So she, she's got that sort of slightly tiresome, leftover hip, hippie quality, a <laughs> bit daffy. And John Middleton, I've had to give a job to. I've made him into a sort of modern Johnny Bowden. You know, mail-order catalogue clothes for nice people where you put your friends and a Labrador in the catalogue. <laughs> because the other thing about Jane Austen is all this class. I mean, they're all David Cameron's class, which is so unfashionable now. <laughs> but there's... 
people love it as long as it's safely in sprigged muslin, but they loathe yeah. it when you've got a prime minister who's, who's of that class. It's, it's very ironic. But there's nothing you can do about it because you have to stay faithful to that. Mm. Joe, one of the really interesting things about your book is the fact that you're changing the perspective from which we're seeing a very familiar story for anyone who loves Jane Austen. How much was that a surprise to you, how the perspective would shift in how we see certain characters, how we see the story being told? Um, or did you always know that, or was that always intended, I presume? It just came out of the writing, out of the process, really. Sorry, I'm, when I turn to face you, I lose my microphone, so I'm going to sit like this. Um, as I was writing it, it became apparent that having shifted the perspective, everything looks different. Um, and so I started to find that I was sympathising with characters that aren't portrayed particularly sympathetically in, um, in Austen's novel. Um, and I was also finding sort of even darker elements to some of them, like, for example, Wickham, when I started to realise the age of the girls that he preys on in Austen's novel. I mean, it is, it's a case of cultural difference as well. People married much younger, but with a modern sort of eye on that, it looks really uneasy. Um, and I discovered, like, um, with Mrs. Bennet, for example, having realised that she's had five babies, at least, without the benefit of modern obstetrics, um, and that she's failed to have that necessary heir, um, I just began to sort of to pick away at these things and just sort of think, well, what is that really like? What is, what's that marriage really like for her? Because it's not, it's not functional, you know. Um, and she's probably just just slightly aware of that, I think, of how of how bad things are. Did you have fun with that aspect of things, with like f scraping away and finding new yeah. elements? Some, I mean, some of the things made me sad. I mean, thinking about <laughs> Mrs. Bennet actually made me sad. As opposed to finding her a comic character, mm. I found her much more of a tragic figure. She is. Um, yeah, and she's because often played for laughs. Because she was so pretty, yes. and he couldn't think how else to get her into bed. Yes. And then he found he was landed with yes. a sort of goose. Yes, essentially, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah. And he was sort of sneering with her, really, mm. wasn't he? Yeah, I think, yes, he is, mm. he is. And there's, I mean, and, and Mary, I, I realised the thing about oh, Mary, Mary is... Oh, it's she's got these two glitteringly beautiful elder sisters, one of whom is, like, the local beauty, the other of whom is the local wit, you know, and then she's got this kind of bundle of ribbons and giggles and flirtation who are younger sisters, and she's just the overlooked middle child. And I sort of, my heart breaks for her, really. I mean, you know, all the stuff that she can't help as well. I mean, she can't help being not as pretty as them, she can't help not being as socially able as, as them. And I just, you know, we all and have our moments of gaucheness. Her father so. says to her at one point, my dear, you have delighted us long enough. Just get her to stop playing the piano, doesn't he? She must feel yeah. that, you yeah. know? And so, yes, I've got, I've got sympathy with the awkward. These books are both enjoyable as standalone novels. You don't have to have read Pride and Prejudice or the original Sense and Sensibility. Again, was that something that you wrote these with that in mind, or did you hope to have some as companion pieces to these to Jane Austen's original novels? Well, I, I don't know what Joe feels about this, but I think there's a whole generation, or perhaps two, of young women who think they are tremendous fans of Jane Austen, but actually have quite a battle with Georgian English. Mm. And because there's been so many television adaptations and so many films, and I think if you, if you Google books that are in some way inspired by or dependent upon Jane Austen's little canon of mm. six novels, I think in the last 10 years, there have been, been nearly 1,300 alone. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a phenomenal number. And so I, I think, I, I am slightly hoping that um, these will be a kind of shoe, well, the Austin project itself will be a sort of shoehorn in for people, who, for generations who find Jane Austen's actual English quite a barrier. And certainly the first chapter of Sense and Sensibility is. Did that affect your, your writing, the language you not used? Not in the least, yeah. not in the least. But I just hoped that it, it, it would sort of encourage them then to read the real thing. Mm -hmm. Because there's, there's no way of imitating her 
extraordinary irony. I mean, there's only two people in that novel she doesn't tease. One is Eleanor Dashwood, and the other is Colonel Brandon. Mm. And she teases, she sends up everyone else, even Marianne. Um, yeah. Oh, but you Marianne know. deserves it. <laughs> <laughs> she really does. Well, she does, but there's a wonderful opening chapter. Um, I think it's just after the scene I read about after Willoughby's dumped her in public. And Jane Austen says, quite likely, Marianne awoke, arose that the next morning, having slept far better than she expected to. <laughs> she really felt she'd let herself down, you know, that, she'd, yeah. that she should have broken heart. She should never have slept again. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to tell people about the Austen Project, for people who don't know about oh, it? Because yes. it is it was, quite a big project. It was the, so sorry, it was the idea of um, an editor no longer at HarperCollins, but a young woman who had the idea of getting six well-known modern writers to reimagine the six Jane Austen novels for the present day, um, sticking to the narrative, sticking to the characters. And I don't, I don't know whether they've all stuck to Jane Austen's attitude to the characters. I know I did, but the others, I think, might not. So I started with Sense and Sensibility, because that was her first. So then Val McDermid has just done Northanger Abbey in hardback. It'll be paperback in six months. The next one will be Emma by Alexander McCall Smith. Then Curtis Sittenfeld, the American, who wrote a marvellous roman of Clef about Laura Bush called American Wife, and then a very witty novel about twins called Sisterland, which was her latest, I think. She's doing Pride and Prejudice, and she's going to set it in America. Then I think it's Lionel Shriver doing Mansfield Park, and I don't know who's going to do Persuasion. But there, it's just, it'll, it'll be... You know, this is, this is obviously a novel in my voice, but I still feel it's Jane's novel. I'm not sure whether that will be true of the other five, um, but we'll see. But anyway, it, it, it is, I think, um, I think part of the aim behind it was to try and reimagine that for a generation that might battle with this, these stately paragraphs, mm. however lighthearted they are, mm. ironic. I did want to ask you, before we open up questions to the audience, because I'm sure you're all very keen to ask Joanna and Joe some questions, I did want to ask you about recreating or creating characters for a world that did exist in Jane Austen's novel, but was not in any way named. As you said, Sarah was the only person, yeah. we all know Hill, yeah. but how did you go about creating the characters? Was Jane Austen much of an influence on those, or did you have complete free reign, did you find? Well, I set myself quite, you have to sit like this again. I set myself um, some rules and um, that, sorry to be turning my back on you. <laughs> um, in that I wouldn't allow myself anybody who wasn't mentioned by name or role or by, by a function that had been um, performed. So the fact that a message comes from Netherfield means that I can bring, I can bring a messenger in. Um, there's that little hot press piece, piece of paper. Um, and so those, that was part of, you know, the scheme was that that was all I was going to allow myself. I wasn't going to allow any prol proliferation. And then I minimised the number of people. I, I, I tried doing it without adding any names. That got very complicated very quickly, and I realised I was going to have to start calling people stuff. And that's why Mr Hill is Mr Hill, um, though he's only mentioned as the butler in Pride and Prejudice. Um, and then I realised, re-watching Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice recently, they've made exactly the same decision. Like a man presents a note and he's referred to as Mr Hill. So, and that's quite a common arrangement. Mm. But as for their actual characters, in each case, they really came out of a series of questions that had, to, and then sort of applying that to a historical context. So, for example, um, the, the proxy question, proxy. yeah, and, and, and what's her life like and how does she feel about this? And then similarly, there's another housemaid. So what kind of a person is a housemaid at this time? What's their background like? Well, a lot of young girls, uh, children got apprenticed from the poorhouse. So um, what's that experience like? And what kind of children went into the poorhouse? And I mean, it's ridiculous to think that the poor law was actually paying 
households to take children on, to take them out of their hands, to learn a trade, i.e. service. And James, too, the footman, as he's mentioned in Pride and Prejudice, he needed a name, I had to call him something. Um, And then he became James. And a young man at this time is really at a premium. Men's labour is extremely important at this time because there's the war going on in the continent, there's... um, the, the militia are also, you know, there to, as we know, with the redcoats to, um, well, for various reasons, which itself is quite interesting. Um, and anyone who's not needed for the army or the navy is wanted to work on the fields to grow crops because Britain has to be self-sufficient because the continent's blockaded, there's no trade, you know. So the idea of young men standing around wearing white gloves and serving soup is really problematic. So why, the government's put a huge tax on them. You know, they're trying to discourage that. And this is a young man who could be off having much more interesting times, earning a lot more money somewhere else. So what's he doing there? And those are, the, those are just the questions that I just started to ask myself. So it was really. like a sort of jigsaw yes. puzzle. Yes, yes. We're going to open questions up to the audience now. Um, thank you both so much for your wonderful readings and for answering all of these questions. <laughs> We have two roving mics, so please just wait until the mic gets to you to ask your question. That is, hoping that there are some questions. Just stick your hand up. This lady here, yes, with the glasses. It's going to be a race. I know. (laughs) If you want to pass it across, maybe. Maybe if if you stand up and people can see you then. Hi, this question is for Joe. I just wondered, did you come across anything in your historical research that surprised you? I was surprised by the amount of things you can do with cold tea. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you can do all sorts, really. Um, It's no, uh, there was there was sort of several different sort of approaches to the research in that I had to look at different things like domestic detail and the grander historical context and stuff like that, Um, but. Um, it, yeah, that probably was the most interesting thing for me was just finding out the domestic detail and the detail of laundry and, and how you would approach laundry because I, I hope I'm not boring people. I'll be very quick. But <laughs> nowadays you're used to just stuffing stuff in a machine and pouring in some, some powder and pressing a button and walking away. But if you have to begin by, you know, filling a copper but that's no good because you need the fuel to heat the water and so you have to begin by you know gathering the fuel or the fuel has to be there already for you already dried and seasoned to heat you know Um, and then if you don't have any soap um, you've got to make your own soap you have to do that six weeks in advance so that it's matured in time so the whole notion the difference between that system and and the sort of extreme forethought and planning that's required to get a clean shirt um, compared with how we do it nowadays. I suppose that was the biggest shock for me, really. How, how much one takes it for granted, just the washing machine, the, the white just, goods. Just the labour of everything. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And I started to think that, to some degree, that the servants are like the white goods, um, in that you, you get dependent, you get used to it, you expect mm. the clean shirt. Mm. You, and you expect them not to make any... You know, it's only when they start to make trouble and be difficult that, you know, you have to call someone out to fix them, um, <laughs> that you really notice that they're there at all, you know? Well, it, it's like the wonderful bit in Longbourn about Lizzie, you know, the famous time when Lizzie walks up to Netherfield and gets her the hem of her dress so dirty and her boots so filthy. Yes. And Sarah's got to clean them. Somebody has to clean them. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. She's not so heroic then, is she? (laughs) Is there another... Yes, this lady here in the striped top front row, please. It's it's another question for Joe, following on from what you just said. in Jane Austen, nobody ever goes to the lavatory. And I just, I don't think if you're writing about the period, you need to explain that people are going to a lavatory, but you need to know what sort of arrangements they had. Yes. And I wondered, what, oh, did read, you manage to pick, <laughs> did you pick up where, how they go to the lavatory in those days? Did they have water I thought you were going to tell me off for the amount that, uh, that is mentioned, really. <laughs> Um, it's, it's interesting because I was, I was on a festival recently with um, 
uh, the woman who wrote Burial Rights, whose name has just disappeared from my head, and she was Hannah Kent, and she was talking about how she found out about exactly this thing in Iceland in the 19th century, you know. Um, and it's, it's something that's quite difficult to find out about because it's not polite. Um, but I had this kind of weirdly connected, fortuitous thing where I grew up in a village in the north of England where there was a vicarage that was Georgian and that was untarted up when I was a kid. So all the outbuildings were still there, including the necessary house. So I, we, we as children, I was, I was friends with the vicar's daughter. We would play in that house all the time. We'd play out in the outbuildings. And I remember the necessary house. I didn't know what it was called at the time, but the plank with a row of holes in it, a row of holes. Um, and then in the back garden or the side garden, you could go out of the, the sort of stable yard area and round the side and down the slope. And there was a full-sized door to open so that some poor soul could come along with a shovel at some point and clear the lot out. There was also the stable was there as well. You know, all the all the outbuildings um, that that sort of the texture and the geography of that building became the model for the house that I describe in Longbourn because I felt it was about right for the status they have and quite closely associated with the house that Austin herself grew up in in um, Steventon which is, is now gone. That sort of vicar's, the sort of the parsonage kind of level. Well, you would have, a, you would have a, a chamber pot as well, but someone would have to deal with that then. Yeah. I think that's a very comprehensive answer. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, anybody from this side of the room? No. Oh, down the back there, yes, please. Thanks. I'd like to thank everybody for a very interesting talk and uh, secondly um, my, talk, my question is to both Joe and Joanna um, uh, this whole kind of Jane Austen cultural trend like so far it's of sequels, rewrites, updates etc mm. it's so far mostly been confined to Jane Austen and do you think why is that like why have we not seen the same with say the Bronte sisters mm. well I, I think um, it, it's partly because I'm sorry to say, but I think it's partly because Jane Austen's been misconstrued as altogether more sugared almond than she actually is. Um, I think it's been seen as something, um, you know, kind of laundered sprig muslin, something sanitized and safe and pretty. And actually, it's, it's none of those things. She doesn't, she, she doesn't bring the cruelty to the forefront of her novels, but it's all there. There's a kind of drumbeat of darkness at the back of all the books. And I don't just mean slavery. I mean the cruelty of people to each other. Mm. And when you get to persuasion at the end, Anne Elliot is an extraordinary portrait of emotional stoicism, and there was nowhere for her to go. And she's described as a spinster of 27 who had lost her bloom. I mean, mm. for goodness sake. <laughs> um, and I think that the Brontes, I mean, I think most teenagers just adore Wuthering Heights, mm. don't they? I mean, that the idea of the world well lost for a grand passion seems entirely plausible and the only thing to be wished for, really, because you know when you're 16, you're never, ever going to die. You're immortal. Um, <laughs> And Charlotte Bronte, of course, deals with a great deal of emotional pain. I would say that Jane Eyre was up there with Jane Austen as a must-read for a certain age. Villette, which is my favourite, I think is not read enough, because that, again, is like persuasion. And I think if you ask most people which Jane Austen is the least popular, it would be persuasion. And it's my favourite, too. Favorite. So I th I'm afraid it's people having... having made Jane Austen to, into something rather safe and pretty that she isn't, you know, the lid of a quality street tin, that she really, really isn't. And most people know about Pride and Prejudice and not really about the others. It's, it's nearly always Pride and Prejudice, mm. I think. Yeah. And it's just that people have mistaken her for something that she, she truly isn't. She really isn't. She, she's a sinewy Georgian writer. Would you, would you agree? I would agree, yes. And I also, 
also think there's an element of um, there's a phasing of this kind of thing. Like she is the, she, there's a moment at the mm. moment, but she has been unfashionable, yeah. and it has to do with the kind of general zeitgeist around you know that one happens to be in. And you were saying about Wuthering Heights, or, or similarly with Jane Eyre, there is this kind of passionate intensity to those, which in some you know, I'm generalising massively here, but to some degree doesn't really fit so well with our quite sort of ironic, cool kind of um, way of being these days. Uh, it's, quite, it's quite hard mm. to be that innocently passionate mm. and a grown-up these mm. days. Mm. <laughs> um, and well, so, I'd be let to sort of say how agonised you are because yes. you're in love with somebody who hasn't really looked your way yes. or is just playing with you. Yes. Mm. That kind of candour won't do. No. No. <laughs> no, not really, no. Are there any? Yes, down the back. Then nice very question, back. though. Thank yes, you. yes, yeah. thank you. Hi, ladies. Um, you have great imaginations, the, the pair of you, and I was just wondering if Jane Austen were a panellist, a fourth panellist sitting beside Edel there today. Two questions. What do you think you would like to ask her? And secondly, what would Jane Austen ask you? <laughs> Who wants to go first? <laughs> well, I, I would say that the question I'd ask her, I'd have two questions for her. One is, did you dislike your mother? <laughs> because all the mothers in Jane Austen, are, I, the only good ones are dead, and all the others are inadequate in some way or another. And the second thing is, are you very bored by happy endings? <laughs> Because she yes. turns away at the end of every novel. She says, well, they're going to get married. I'm sure they're fine. But I am now actually terribly bored with them. <laughs> what would she ask us? Outside, probably, for punch-up. I, I, <laughs> I think she'd say, it's all very well for you two. You've both made some money out of writing. <laughs> Do you think? Yes, probably. She, I, I'm not sure, actually, she'd ask us anything. I think yeah. she might tell us things. Yes. <laughs> Quite firmly. Yeah. And not pulling any punches. Yeah. I'm not sure she'd be awfully nice to us. No, I, I wouldn't she, expect <laughs> No, I would, I'd be rather disappointed if she was. Do you know, someone um, at an event I did recently referred to that, what, what you said earlier about her, her, her books being her children. I'd express some anxiety, you know, at the notion that there might be an afterlife and I would have to spend it hiding in a cupboard in case she came after me. Yes. Um, and, yes, yeah, so her books are her, her, her children, her babies. And then this woman suggested, well, maybe these are her grandchildren. Oh. And I felt a kind of weight lift. I, I <laughs> Given that kind of notion, I think. I, I mean, I think she'd have been thrilled to find herself so popular yes. and so imitated, wouldn't she? Do you know what I'd like to ask her? I'd like to, well, I'd be able to tell when she was there which is the portrait that favours yes. her most. Yes. I would really like to know that because I, I'm very interested in that. And I think that, yes. that one, the woman with the, with the pen is quite, I find that or, quite compelling. Or the one painted from behind, so we don't really know what she looks mm. like. <laughs> Because I so, don't yes. think she minded the sort of enigma. Yes. But she was quite keen on her appearance. Yeah, well, she talks about it all the time. And yes, the she does. All her yes, she does. Yeah. Yes, she does. Mm. Yeah, where nice did you question. get that frock? Yes. Might be the question <laughs> yes. as well. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any more questions? Mm. One more. There we are. This poor chap's had to do all the work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if you felt daunted by Jane Austen's elegant prose. Do you want to repeat it? Did, did you um, feel daunted by no, Jane Austen's elegant prose? No, I, I didn't, because I wasn't trying to imitate it or aspire to it. What I've done is definitely a tribute to her genius. This is my saying how wonderful I think she is. And I still think the book is her book. I may have written it, but I still think it's her book. It's just me having a kind of modern tweak of it, really. It's still her novel. Um, and because she's so clear, 
and because her use of irony is so eloquent. You knew where you were going. The, the path was marked with absolute clarity right the way from beginning to end. So I was very much being taken by the hand all the way through. And I felt indebted to her in an increasingly admiring and always mm. grateful way. So the question of being daunted doesn't really arise because it was always her book. And when it comes to the, to the ardent Jainites who know every single semicolon mm. and believe her to be goddess-like, my message to them was, do not read this. Do not put yourself <laughs> through the misery of reading it if you are so purist you think yes. she can do no wrong. Yes. So I, I feel that very sort of powerfully. Do, do you feel that? Yeah, I do. That um, it's no, no, don't, don't upset yourself, it's, dear. It's clearly an option. You yes. can if you want to. There's yes. no obligation. No. And the 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 pride and prejudice and sense and sensibility still exist, pristine and perfect they in do. the classic section. We haven't tangled with them. We yeah. haven't messed them up in any way. Every word is still as, as she left it. Exactly. Um, a very good way of putting it. And for me. It took me a little while to find my way of writing this story. I didn't want the notion of like pastiche or parody or trying to sound like her. I really just, that made me feel a bit sick. But you've got, there's, there's a kind of elegance to the way you've written this. You, you've, you've found a voice which is not necessarily a historical fiction voice, mm. but it is a voice that it's got some elegance and formality to it. It's, it's measured, it's paced. I looked for kind of syntactic kind of mm. echoes of, of, of her ways of constructing a sentence, that kind of thing, and the, obviously vocabulary as well. But, you know, it's a different world, and to try and use that, that elegant voice, you know, it just her voice wouldn't have fitted, it wouldn't, it, it would have been a mess if I tried well, to do it. Well, she never describes anything. Exactly, yeah. And you, you describe... Yeah. A lot. Because the world has to be engaged with in that. Yeah. You know, you really have to get your hands dirty down there. So you do need to sort of sense the physicality of that world. Yes. So I, what I tried to do was just kind of honour her voice, or echo from time to time. And I think an example would be that bit at the very beginning of the novel where, you know, in Pride and Prejudice, it's a truth universally acknowledged, mm. you know, that old chestnut. And that's obviously not actually a universal truth that's a bit of a joke as well that's just what these women in oh, this yes. particular yeah. place happen to think right now in this in it's this it's a send world. up of mrs bennett exactly yeah but what i wanted to do here you know everyone was you know one i think one of the first questions people have is like well, what what's that opening line is it going to be every time you get a review it's a truth universe universally acknowledged that every review must begin with and it's a truth universally acknowledged <laughs> so i couldn't do that so what i did was find Sarah's truth that was universal from her point of view. You know, there can be no clothes without their laundering. And it's, that was the kind of thing that I was trying to do, to sort of nod to, to echo, mm. to honour what, what Austin had written. Thank you both. Can I ask, you know, the oh. film Gosford Park? Yeah. I thought that was wonderful, the mm. tension there between the, the servants mm. and the operator. Maggie Smith, I can't remember the character mm. she played, but she was the one who realised that you could find out what was going on from the servants' version of events. And was that something that, that you found at all, that some of them had the wit to know that the servants would, would be the eyes and ears of owls? It's a very good question. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't come up just because of the nature of the story. Um, it's, that, that kind of intrigue is, isn't, isn't what's play, playing out in, in, in Longbourn. Um, but it is, it's a wonderful film. It really is a wonderful film. And that, as you say, that's, that is actually a really interesting perspective, the sort of awareness that you can sort of tap into that kind of... Um, that, 
that sort of um, the almost sort of network of of information below stairs. I suppose the, the closest to that is the sort of the figure of Wickham because he's sort of sort of tran in in transit between the two worlds. He doesn't belong in either one. He's kind of kind of weirdly classless, having been brought up to the same sort of with the same mm. education, the same kind of experiences as Mr. Darcy, but then not getting the money to substantiate that. So he's sort of hovering between those two worlds and sort of able to use both worlds. Thank you. I think Wickham is a fascinating thing because nowadays, you know, you'd be able to check on funding. So it's yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. In fact, you might get a version that's actually near your chair because it'd be so derogatory. But, mm. but they had, she had to rely, Elizabeth, on his version of events. Mm. But then, yeah. of course, that makes a great novel. Because yeah. Because you have the slow unfolding of his... Uh, you know, well, yes, yes. I mean, he he could keep secret secret in the way that we can't nowadays. Really, not so not so readily anyway. If you're not if you're snapped on someone's iPhone while you're you know, um, and then it's on Twitter and Facebook. And um, Val McDermott was saying recently about um, her Northanger Abbey that part of the reason she located it where she has, which is in the borders in in between Scotland and England, is because she knows for certain there. Is no mobile phone. <laughs> no, you can't use your phones around there. So you're able to sort of strip away all those things that get in the way of suspense and tension. You know, it's no good if you can just phone the person up and say, you know, so this thing I heard about you, is it true? Yes. Okay. You know, I mean, story over. Yeah. And of course, there's the, the quality of drama, isn't there, in all these novels, that there's moments when Jane Austen is sharing knowledge with the reader. Mm. that the characters in the book don't yet know about. Mm. So there's a, the various levels of complicity that one really has to maintain, I think. Mm. Mm. Joanna Trollope, Joe Baker, thank you so much for the talk. And just to let everybody know, you can find copies of both books upstairs on the table as you exit. Please join me in thanking both authors. Thank you.